Hi, I'm Alan Higgins. In this episode of The Game Chat, we talked with Joe Neary on his journey from game play community into game development. Welcome to the Game Chat series on Design Talk. I'm Ruth Campion. And I am Andras Pop. And today we're talking with Joe Neary, Senior Quality Assurance Member at Romero Games based in Galway, Ireland. So, welcome, Joe. First, could you talk a little about your own background and how you got drawn into the game development field? I got involved in the games industry uh, through a lot of different ways. Like, I was joined, I suppose, at the very beginning of everything, I joined the fansite community in NUIG. It's a, basically their board game club that got me into organizing events and trying to run basically a gamer space in Galway for a bit. When I left college, I tried to start up my own version of Fansai or at least a, a gamer space outside of a college because it, we'd noticed that though everyone's uh, available and everyone's happy to join, uh, some people just do not want to enter a college campus after the age of 22, which is totally cool. People live out in the real world. They don't want to keep going back to where they were when they were in their early 20s. Uh, so we started up Galway Gaming Tribes, which was basically a big board game slash video game night in the center of Galway. That would happen once a week. After uh, maybe a year of running that, we were contacted and tried to contact some indie game developers that were based in Galway because we wanted them to take part in our event to try and gain legitimacy for ourselves, to try and be a point on the map that couldn't be easily replicated by anyone else that brought a bunch of board games to a and said, hey, we're here, we exist. So we ended up making a lot of good contacts with the Galway games industry, and they'd occasionally bring prototypes of their products to showcase at our events. So they got some free beta testers, some QA people, uh, and we got a really cool, nice, uh, really cool event to focus the night around, uh, maybe once a month, two times, two or three times a year. So through the process of doing that for a year or two, I did a lot of random QA work for a lot of the many indie game development studios in Galway. I got quite a good working relationship with all of those, ended up helping out many of the teams in a lot of different ways because I just was sort of ingrained with what they were doing. And then when people ended up needing as some of the, those projects matured and people needed actual QA testers, I was actually in a pretty good position to put myself forward because I'd already knew everybody and how they wanted their QA testing done and had a, built up a pretty good baseline knowledge of how that worked. Uh, later on, uh, Romero Games came to Galway and when they were looking for a temporary position for just a couple of weeks, I put my name forward for that and with my baseline and experience, uh, I got in with some other people And then after that temporary period ended, say in December of that year, I was then contacted in February when they were ramping up again to maybe come back as a full-time person, uh, which I jumped at. And so I'm now there almost uh, three and a half years. So that is an incredibly long temporary position. (laughs) Basically, my entry to the games industry wasn't, it wasn't an entirely traditional one. It was involved with a lot of networking, a lot of getting to know people and a lot of making sure it was always useful to the people running the games development companies in Galway. I'm not sure if that's an easily emulatable thing, but it it shows that there's a lot of different ways to get into the games industry, but uh, nothing, I would say that with as the industry matures, it's definitely going to be preferable to have degrees and have education backgrounds in your field. Otherwise, just with any industry that's maturing, it becomes less and less to come in from running board game nights in the center of Galway and more having a very good degree 
with a lot of good uh, experience and projects. I'm intrigued, actually, um, Joe, the idea of the uh, sort of porous ecosystem that, uh, that, in a sense, you established in Galway with the game nights drifting into game companies. And I think game, small game companies, small startups, they'd be tapping into the game community too for feedback, for playtesting, weren't they? Definitely more so with smaller companies than large behemoths. The smaller game companies that are run by less than 10 people will not have the resources to like run a million surveys and have a thousand people come in and test the game with an online beta or something. So they're very hungry to get to know people and get involved in a community. And they're much more likely to build up a community of indie developers in any city rather than large corporations because indie game developers are very ha- that are in small companies are very happy to demo products quite early and show people things. Whereas the larger a company gets and the more contracts they have with people outside themselves, things become a lot more um, legally difficult to show people outside of a company because you've got a lot of deals made with a lot of different companies that you'd like to show them something, but you'd like to show the public something, but translating that over, it could it could cause a lot of issues and no one wants that. Whereas when it's you and three other people making a game, you can just show people and the world won't, the, a million lawyers won't have a heart attack. As a lover of role-playing games and, and tabletop RPGs, I, I find the world of live-action role-playing games quite interesting. And I know that uh, you, Joe, are in this circle. Uh, so could you please tell me a little more about these events? Uh, live-action role-playing games are very interesting because a lot of the more traditional things like um, Fansai and the con circuit in Ireland, so the board game con circuit, that's GaleCon, It's a Gone, Whoop Con, uh, possibly QCon in Belfast, and a bunch of other conventions that are all around the country, tend to be the places in Ireland where LARPing happens, at least the LARPing that I'm familiar with. So people will go away to a board game or video game convention, and then there'll be some LARPs available. And that will sort of be a lot of people's first intro to LARPing uh, in Ireland. It's obviously much harder to put together than an RPG tip, tabletop group because people with three friends and a, and a GM, so I guess four friends, can get together and run something on a table. But with live action role playing, it takes a lot more organization. It's, it's definitely a lot harder to put together than three friends and a GM. So it fits, but it always, because it requires so much more organization, the events are always, rather than once a week at somebody's house, it's more once a month to once every three months in a field somewhere or maybe a warehouse somewhere that a lot of people put a lot of time and effort into organizing. I will say that most of the LARPing events that happen regularly that I'm familiar with uh, end up uh, with friends of mine traveling to England or mainland Europe to take part in big battle style LARP events. So Ireland definitely has a LARPing scene. I'm, I'm quite sure there's a LARP scene in Dublin, although obviously at the moment none of these things are happening due to COVID, but uh, I'm most familiar with uh, the basically people in the west of Ireland going to uh, England. There is a huge Irish-based event called Ablana. Uh, I'm not sure if that's currently happening, but was happening before COVID started up. Uh, LARPs kind of scratch a different itch, don't they? Live action role play is like theater, I think, in a sense. You, you need to get up, you need to move around, you take part, you act out. 
it's a really different experience. So the, in tabletop RPGs, the, you can occasionally get a player that just likes to roll dice and take turns in combat and doesn't really role play. But with LARPing, even if you take a player like that, it's almost impossible not to get drawn into playing a character when you're physically standing there and talking to people uh, rather than uh, imagining uh, a, a character while you're sitting at a table and then trying to play off that. So even the most non-role play uh, role playing gamer will start to uh, more fall into their character when they're playing a LARP. At least that's my experience. I've always found that it's much easier to role play while live action role playing than tabletop RPG. Mm. Just because you were talking about um, you know the the dice roller players there, Joe. Do you think that there's any overlap between design and QA, quote unquote, for pen and paper RPGs and board games and, and video games? Or has that has that kind of informed your, you know, your professional experience to participating in uh, board games and LARPs and stuff? Uh, definitely. I think being gaming literate is a huge part of what I do. And there's the only way, one way to do that. Build up a knowledge of how games work. It's to play everything and get everything get as much info on all types of games as possible also taking part in rpgs and board games and all of that definitely informs in that you have to work as part of a team and you've got to communicate effectively and you've got to all be working to the same rules that everybody understands so in that way it has definitely informed my working in qa i was just thinking of you know the the process of designing a a pen and paper rpg and how you're kind of trying to design it to be a immersive for people as well and whether that sort of influenced the way you do that professionally oh definitely and a, a lot of the game designer actually every game designer that i've uh, worked with has some uh, experience with writing rpgs i know that when they started making what they considered games they were making rpgs for their friends or they were designing a campaign for their friends and then they were considering how their friends would react to that and they were considering basically their first experience of trying to get into the headspace of I'm designing this for other people and other people have to enjoy this. So I've got to make this as interesting and cool as possible. And maybe I'll twist these rules to do something else that I want them to do. And eventually if you twist a gaming system enough, you've actually accidentally made your own gaming system. So congratulations, you're a game developer now. You hinted at the um, the role of, of playing together, having shared experiences um, relating to the development team itself making it more cohesive so separate to what the development team is working on if they play together sometimes and build up this sort of understanding of games and play but they're playing with each other they're also kind of getting to know each other sharing experience um sharing language sharing constructs i think that's a really powerful thing to have in a team uh at my current company we definitely uh play a lot of games together uh people uh, take part in D&D nights, or at least people did take part in D&D nights before the current situation. Uh, people play Quake on lunch. A lot of, almost for a while, it seemed like every lunch was Quake lunch. So we didn't, we stopped leaving the office. <laughs> for, well, no, we, we'd go get lunch and then eat that as quick as possible and then run back to try and spend the rest of lunch uh, playing Quake with each other because someone figured out basically, oh, Quake is still really, a really good time. We've got one of the best Quake players in the country and obviously John is also one of the best players in the country. So Ronan Pierce uh, was part of the land scene for Quake in Ireland back in the day. So he jumped the chance to set that up again, but in our office. So people that had never played Quake before, myself included, ended up getting quite good at a game that we hadn't 
played before or at least had not played in any multiplayer way. I'd played through a Quake campaign, but I hadn't played it over a LAN party, which is like the definitive way to enjoy them. I'm not sure if this has improved their cohesiveness, but I imagine it has. I haven't run a control test where we never played games with each other, but we are constantly, like anybody that enjoys games, you're trying to play games with your friends. Most of the people in the company are quite good friends with each other, so they end up playing games with each other, and that feeds back into itself. I had never considered that we were making the team stronger, but I guess there's a uh, nefarious undertone to everything. <laughs> so we thought we were having fun, but actually we were being better team members, so no. I, I always like to think that the uh, D&D nights are happening uh, at game companies, so I'm, I'm really happy to hear that it's, it's actually happening. It's something that I definitely enjoy as well. I can't, I can't guarantee it will happen at every game company, but it seems when you spend... I had an answer prepared where I was going to be like, people can make games without playing games. There's quite a good game developer in uh, NUIG, Sam Redfern, part of Psychic Software, who's... Uh, done a lot of really cool stuff but he someone's recently said to me about him that he's more interested in making games and gets more fun out of making games than he does in playing games at the moment just where he is in his life and I, I'm a big fan of Sam and I think he makes some really great stuff so it's possible to make games without playing all that much but there's something to be said about having played everything it's going to like I've said the word game literate before it's going to give you a really good base knowledge of how all game systems work or at least how the from the player side game systems work so you'll be able to you won't have to reinvent the wheel if you want to do something like that in your own game. You can see how other people have done it before and then you can adapt your own system rather than starting from uh, year zero and trying to build up from there. So I think that's a huge part of any game studio. So if you're if you're a small game company and you're starting out and you can you realize, oh, there's this community of people I can kind of tap into for playtesting and stuff, how do you make sure that you can get the right information from them or that the information, the feedback you're getting is good? That is a difficult question. There's actually quite a bit that goes into trying to parse out, uh, I'll say useful feedback, then yes, useful feedback, because all feedback is not really good or bad. It's just levels of how useful it is to the project and how actionable it is. Uh, or if it's going to, if someone says, I like racing games and this is an RPG, that is not useful feedback, but it is, it is still, it's not really good or bad. It's just non-actionable. I would say that it's almost the quantity of, Feedback is what makes it useful. So if you're getting one note from one person, that's interesting. But if you're getting 10 notes back from 10 different people and they're all the same note, that is much more, that would rate higher on the usefulness scale, uh, or at least more, this needs to be addressed scale. So it is almost a numbers game or a quantity analysis. Whereas if you bring your board game to an event, uh, one event and have one person play it and they say something that it's difficult to tell how useful that is unless you immediately go, oh, that's a good idea. But if you bring your board game to 10 events and have 20 different people play it and from those 20 people, all of them said two or three things in common, then that's how I would go about it. I, For being someone that's tested for people and has had people test games at my events, that seems to be the model that I've seen the most success with. Today we were talking about um, Mark Cerny's uh, method process, which was one of the first kind of agile-ish structures for organizing video game development. And he makes a big deal of pre-production and production as two completely different phases, but emphasizes playtesting as a key practice. Um, do, you th do you think that, that's what we're talking about, playtesting, I suppose? Uh, yeah. 
and I 100% uh, agree with that. Playtesting is an incredibly important part of game development. There's a lot of, unlike like anything, uh, designer phrase fail faster. It's sort of, uh, you have to play the thing and make as much interaction with it as possible to figure out if it's working and if it's not working. And sometimes something can look amazing on paper, but when it's translated into the game, it doesn't hold up for some undefinable reason. And the only way to find anything like that is to play test it and get as much feedback on it as possible throughout the design and building process. At least that's my opinion. As someone in QA, I would say something like that. But all, all testing all the time is my strongest suggestion for if you're making a game. Yeah, fail fast, fail forward, as they say. Learn from from what people are doing and how they perceive it. So there's, you know, I, I'm totally into all these observational methods and analysis and analytics and um colleague of ours uh, suggests um, watching the picture-in-picture picture view of the player's face as they're playing the video game, and that's a really rich method of, of uh, finding if where their moments of joy are or moments of frustration are where they are in the game. And that also gets past the problem of people can have difficulty putting into words or vocalizing what they felt about a product, but their face will usually betray something uh, that they might not even cop themselves. Like maybe they had a moment of frustration when a menu didn't react the way they expected, but their face will do the thing, <laughs> but they may not even remember it 10 seconds later. So that's valid. I don't think I've ever used that in any professional capacity, but I would see a huge amount of value in uh, reacting to pe- seeing people's physical reactions to the game. What kind of methods does uh, a QA tester use? So how, how do you approach testing the, the game to reveal as many uh, bugs as you can? Uh, there's a lot of different methods that I'll, I'll go into methods that I'm familiar with and have used on various projects. But the main one would be having a reliable smoke test, the smoke test being a, a list of features and assets and things to do in the game and make sure that those are all checked as often as possible. Uh, so there is... Obviously, you could go into the game and just play it as a player, and that has a huge amount of value as well. But if someone is running that style of testing every day, they are going to start falling to their own habits and to end up playing the game, parts of the game that they like, and they may start having blind spots that they're not aware of, whereas having a huge list of all features and different abilities and basically different things you can do in the game, having a huge list of that called the smoke test and going off that and making sure that that is checked as often as possible, maybe once a day, once a week, just to make sure that everything gets hit as often as possible. Because if you let people just loose with no stuff, with no uh, with no assigned plan, they will eventually fall into their own habits, completely unaware of their fall into their own habits, and they'll start having huge blind spots that will grow that they are not aware of. So while letting people run loose and test it day after day at their own volition is uh, useful, definitely causes a lot of really good feedback. But uh, using a combination of that and working with smoke tests is probably the most valuable way. Uh, and obviously, any issues that are found have to be logged. People that those issues are relevant to have to be notified. And then when a fix comes in for any issue, that has to be tested as well again. And then that person that test that implemented the fix has to be notified if that was a pass or a fail. Things like those are the two most opposite forms of QA testing, in my opinion, and you kind of have to use both of them. You have to mash them together and be at once someone that plays the game uh, with a player's perspective and someone that has to basically treat the game as a bunch of systems and you have to make sure that all the different systems are upright and working in the expected way. 
Yeah, I believe when uh, the testers are just sitting down and playing, uh, I assume more common issues come up. And then uh, with like the, the systematic testing, some hidden ones that could ruin someone's game completely, but they aren't as common. Uh, yes, uh, edge cases will definitely come up more often when people are testing it more in the robotic I am a QA tester, I must figure out the, to this issue from all different angles. Whereas more common things that a regular player was more likely to encounter would um, or is more likely to be encountered when people are just playing as a player. Both of those are incredibly valuable. So both of those have to be found, logged, reported, fixed, and fixed, verified, and retested. Uh, it's just the, the nature of it, but you're 100% right. Common issues are found when people play the game as they expect a player would, and more edge case, but potentially much more damaging issues are found when people play it as a QA tester. So as an observation, um, Joe, the test and QA has a role in fixing, finding and fixing bugs, obviously, but does it have a role also in providing feedback and maybe new design direction? Um, there is definitely some feedback between a QA department and a design department. Like, like I said before, if enough QA people are giving the same note on something over a period of time and a bunch of different QA people give the same note, that might be an influence on design in a, in a very indirect way that, oh, maybe this could be changed. There is uh, also uh, in a lot of companies a very healthy relationship between QA and design, whereas QA can uh, directly request features or say that I felt that this feature is missing and would be a benefit to the to the project or even uh, have people from the QA team provide design feedback and design suggestions to a point and become sort of a, an official and then maybe later even official member of the design team. That is a path that exists and has happened with uh, different people. The QA and design relationship is very interesting and very that the amount of back and forth there is, is quite uh, healthy. I'm, I'm sure designers use everybody in the company, particularly QA and testing, as a sounding board for some of their ideas too. Oh, yes. Uh, that's uh, in every project I've worked on. That is it. I think that, like, like I said earlier, you kind of have to fail, the, the fail faster, fail forward thing. And if you have an idea in your head and you're not telling other people on the team about it, you're never going to get feedback. So they have to bounce ideas off everybody and they have to keep that, Though they'll have a strong idea of what they want to do in their head, they, a designer will seek playtest, <laughs> seek feedback on ideas quite often. And as it's just part of the design thing. Design is sort of, it always has to be reflected in other people. At least that's my opinion. That's not, a, that's not something anybody's ever said to me. I'm a writer now. I've come up with idioms of my own. <laughs> We're really interested in finding out what designers, testers, people in the industry think of as their um standout games and where what they would play if they could or what they would consider to be a masterpiece could be video games could be board games what for you are some of the standout games of recent years and what would you go back to play what is a masterpiece um i've got a huge soft spot in my heart for the roguelike genre i came to it quite late uh, back when it was called rogue and was nethack in the early uh 80 on the 80s and early 90s um, those games were all very interesting, but kind of impenetrable to me. I tried to play NetHack when I was in college and didn't really, didn't click, uh, mainly because it's ASCII graphics and I was I was not used to the letter A and H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P being characters I had to think about 
as physical things. So that was impenetrable. But then FTL came out, uh, and FTL is this great roguelike based in space that um, is hard as nails, and you can play. It's endlessly replayable, and you make strategic decisions almost every two or three minutes. Or and its combat system is incredibly involved. So when combat is happening, you're making one every two seconds, and then you're dying because you made the wrong one. It's a it's a really great uh, it's a really great space. I was going to say space sim, but it's definitely not a sim. Uh, it's really, really good space game with an interesting story, but it's generic enough to be replayed a, a thousand times without getting bored of any story beats that you've seen too often. It's 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 a really great game. FTL is probably one of my standouts um, of last year. Uh, Hades came out, and that's another one in the roguelike genre by uh, Supergiant Games, and that was. Um, fantastic in lots of ways it's got that endless replayability that roguelikes have but this time they married a story to it and the story it's the first time i'd ever seen a story done well in, in a roguelike and i uh, couldn't get enough of it i'm still playing it <laughs> so and that's been out for over six months i myself constantly return to street fighter 5 it's a fighting game obviously street fighter it's a big name but i've played uh since the start of lockdown i have played hundreds of hours of Street Fighter V because I can play it online. I've got friends that I used to travel to the houses of to play this game. I travel to Scotland with people to take part in certain tournaments. So Street Fighter V is another huge game I'll always go back to, even if it's more the community that's built up around the game than the game itself. Other other big, huge games that I'd like to play but are not as recent, the Dawn of War series. Uh, so that's a RTS based on the Warhammer universe. They had a really popular, strong online element back in the day. The, Turk expansion, Turk Crusade expansion being the big one, and uh, Fallout New Vegas is probably my favorite RPG uh, ever made. It's a Bethesda-style RPG made by Obsidian, first-person perspective. It's great. I'm sorry for shouting a bunch of game names at you. I wanted to, I did, I wanted to say all my favorite games, and it turns out I've got too many. Oh, there can be too many favorite games. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think we are all right, and and I can second FDL. It's it's great. Yeah, it's um. It will take up a lot of your time if you get too into it, so I'm glad that I have a more healthy relationship yeah. with FTL now. All right. Thank you, Joe, uh, to taking the time to give us your insights uh, into games and to the work of QA uh, and testing. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, it was a pleasure to, to take part. This was very enjoyable from my end, and I really enjoyed sharing my thoughts on things with some people. And so thank you so much for inviting me, uh, Alan and Ruth, that was, and Andreas. That was not something I expected, but I was very happy to oblige. Thank you.